an 8-bit rocket studio. The 7800 production. is amazing at what it does. You can't believe how much more it can do than the 2600. I can't believe it is seemingly powerful in ways that no one ever tapped into when they were making those original 7800 games. I really think that it is one of the best but most untapped systems. Silicon Revolution, an X-generation conscripted to fight the console and home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world 8 bits at a time. Armed with joysticks, full-stroke keyboards, jolt cola, and MTV haircuts, we proceeded into the vertical blank. There, we stayed up late at night, devising incantations from D&D rulebooks and beginners' all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Video games were the match, and programming was the fuse, as the infinite possibilities of the digital world exploded into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. This is season six, episode four. Yes. Yes. Season six, episode four. Inflection point. Inflection point. Inflection point. Is that, that's like a Tom Cruise movie, right? Inflection uh, it's point. not, but it, it could be Tom Cruise or it could be, uh, um, who was the guy in Valley Girl? Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage. Inflection point with Nicholas Cage. I mean, I thought you were going to say like Jean-Claude Van Damme or something. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Inflection point. Yes. Inflection. Like There's a reason why they're called inflection points. Into the vertical plane. Generation and sorry. Into the vertical plane. Generation and sorry. First of all, okay, so this is this is episode, this is season six, episode four, inflection point, and I wanted to talk about one thing that we've never talked about before. First, sure. a little bit in the retro game news, and it's about the Intellivision Amico. Well, okay, wait, we have mentioned the Amico once or twice before. Okay, but we never actually talked about it, and the reason why we haven't talked about it is because we know a couple people with with the best intentions. Yes. We're working on it. There's, I think, Paul Nuriman. He was. I don't know if he's if he. Right, right. Were they worked on it? They had started because right. they started with the best intentions. Right. Andre Lamoth. Right. They they both were working on it. They both had the best intentions. Of very, you know, these are these are guys who are super great retro game guys. Right. And right. Exactly. they just, I know they start. They worked on this or or part of it because they really wanted to make something great. And I didn't want to step on them in any way whatsoever because I really respect them both. But I don't think they're part of it anymore. No. And what I heard last week or was it the week before is just so upsetting to me. And that was that they're, you know, they're still far from having any sort of console released. They're they're far from having anything where people can play their games on. 
And the people who purchased all those pre-carts yeah, that that's don't what really I mean. have anything on them, like they yeah. need to have a way to play those games. So right? so the news came out again, if, in case people don't know, I guess it's online. It's just it's just that there was an update and the update said basically nothing. They still don't have a console, any close to having a console, but that they were going to license more properties or license out the existing Intellivision properties or some sort of messaging gobbledygook. They did say one thing that was interesting, and I think people are now starting to pick – I saw a couple people talk about this on YouTube about how the email that came out said something about it being able to play the Amico games on mobile systems but still utilizing the amico controller or the virtual controller on a cell phone right and what it sounded to me like was they had pivoted away from an actual hardware console to the idea that they would have some sort of virtual machine running on android because you can't do it on ios and then it would connect through Bluetooth to the controller or phones to be the controller. Well, I think phones as the controller is it, what's with an app is probably yeah. closer to what's going to happen. Well, and all I'm saying is that's it's an interesting idea if that's what they started with. It's not a really great idea because there are already tons of virtual consoles out there you can play all sorts of games on. And Apple Games being one of them where you've got hundreds of games for five bucks a month like the idea that someone may want to play these kind of odd amico games shark shark and um armor attack and i don't know if the armor attacks on there but I know. Smash I mean, and... you know i mean those games sound fun those games sound fun it's fine but it's it's silly that you think that people may want this as like like a top of the line thing what what people wanted what i know the guys that i said wanted was they wanted that physical console again because they just love that and it feels like their dreams have been completely destroyed and i feel really bad for those guys and for the people who who, who bought it right who let me let me put it in context okay now to me um there's a reason why there have been multiple umpteen 2600 devices to plug into a TV because the 2600 won that era. There's a reason why the NES has had multiple devices to plug into a TV, but really there's been no SMS. There's a reason why there's a Mega Mini and not an Atari ST Mini. There's a reason why there's a 664 Mini and not an Atari 800 or Timex Sinclair Mini. The one that won, that had the most hearts and minds that could make money is already doing it. Yeah. And there isn't a lot of room for really, even though Mattel and Mattel Electronics <laughs> was successful, so was the Atari ST. And you hear, hear Atari basically burying that in their history. It's something where, like, they're just, unless it's going to be something incredible, you're, it's not enough, right? There isn't enough. It, the, you know, listing, I really love the podcast, They Create Worlds. They do such a great job of doing the do. history on it. Um, they did a really good job of explaining the from the Intellivision perspective how long the actual Intellivision was successful for. And it's really about a year. It's really roughly from Christmas 1981 
to about Christmas 1982. Because in 1981, they had the sports games that they, they compared to the VCS. Didn't really hurt the VCS sales. It sold a lot of televisions. Right. And then, right. but by 1982, the ColecoVision was out. As the competitor to Atari, ColecoVision became the competitor, not right. in television. Because in television, really, I mean, they, they did okay. But I think, I think ultimately, I want to say they sold somewhere between a million and two million consoles. A, a lot, but not enough for anyone to really care. Um, there's not a huge amount of people with nostalgia for it. There's a huge amount of people for nostalgia from the era, but I, I think you would be hard pressed to find a lot of people on the street right now that could that even know what the Intellivision is or or could name one game. That came for, for a lot of us that had 2600s, we were envious of the Intellivision, envious of the Vetrex, although we had one, envious of the ColecoVision. So there's a lot of people that are diehards like us that didn't have them and would be very interested in in doing them. There aren't enough of us, though. It's just right? a few. And, and, and <laughs> unfortunately, you know, for lack of a better term, people are dying off. You know, know the market for for era golden age stuff that is goes going, away. It's going away because because a lot of people don't aren't around. They're aging out, or they don't care anymore, or they've got other things to do, or they're retired. You know, it's kind of like if you go to an antique store now, and you look around the antique store and see the stuff from the fifties. You know, they have like Tom Mix cartoon books and and you know the Lone Ranger and stuff, and it's cool stuff. And I I, I bet. 30 years ago those things would have got top dollar but now you look at them as oh it's you know a couple bucks five bucks you know because the the audience just is not there anymore they aged out to buy it they they aged out and and unfortunately you know you and i are in right in the middle age of the atari age so i'd say we still have a little bit of time to age out and i i plan to be here for another 50 years doing this but, <laughs> aging out exactly yeah but i will say that you know in in general there's just i just don't think there's enough there's enough people but here's the real thing that makes me upset about the amico if it's true that they literally sold off the licenses for their properties yeah. to other companies the the license they now someone says that they actually bought Astro's Mash and bought Shark Shark now I don't care about Shark Shark I, I I mean I look at that game and I'm like okay that looks kind of fun but I don't know anyone back in the day who cared I maybe there were maybe it was a big deal um, yeah I don't know I, I think Space Armada and Star Strike and and those games were better than Astro Smash is a is a good one and but but I don't know how much real you know equity those brands have at all you know I, I don't think I think the artwork the original artwork and the gate folds and the the graphics on the television and all that all the nuances and stuff those are cool that has something right but by but by selling off the properties they've i i think i feel like they've taken what had value as a collection altogether and because of their hubris and thinking they could make a console in this day and age to compete with the regular console companies they basically have they've done what a corporate takeover would have done they've they they bought it and now they're piecing it apart and selling it for scrap they're they're basically a Mitt Romney. Yeah, they're a Mitt Romney. They're a, yeah, they're the Bane Capital of Bane Capital of um, retro games. 
I was going to say that Atari actually purchased the rights to a bunch of the games that they made for the 2600. Yeah, the M the M network games. So I could imagine the M network ones coming out or even them being cartridges that are selling because they're doing pretty well with their limited edition cartridges, by the way. I mean, they all sell out. I don't know how many they sell. I'm saying they all sell out, though. But I could imagine Atari actually making versions of those games that are just slightly more advanced and they're better than the Intellivision versions. And now you have the primary version on the VCS and in Steam that you can well, I'd play. say Wayne Rosen over at Atari is doing the exact opposite of what the people who right. who owned the Intellivision IP did. They they are Atari is now buying. They made a couple great games last year. Atari Mania is 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 a decent game if you've ever it's played hard. it. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard, but it's interesting. It's it's the way it, I I feel like they finally did something interesting with Atari properties. I don't like it as much as I have hoped because I, I think they should have stayed with more classic graphics. It makes more sense. The nuances make more sense that way to people. And the newer graphics aren't good enough to justify not having the old ones, if that makes sense. I, I um, they're good. Mean. They're good. It's just, it's, but anyway, besides that, an Atari 50 and a lot of the, the recharged games, these are, these are, these are good. These are but, good steps, really good steps. But they also bought Moby games you know the the big database of of yes us. i know moby i use it every day and i don't like the new organization of moby they they, they put all the reviews for all the consoles in one place or in all the version of one place instead of per and it's okay it's just i liked it better the way it was i think they're doing a great job though so i'm not going to complain well they bought it right and it needed to be yeah. bought and so now atari owns that which is weird but interesting they bought all those computer game licenses a lot of a lot of them were Microprose games, but it's not just Microprose. There's some other stuff in there too. I no one's seen the hundred games that they bought, but it, right. but it sounds it's a very interesting set of. You know what? There was a bunch of things that got combined when Mattel and Hasbro each owned them after one after another, right? Like in various. Well, no, Hasbro owned it, and then Mattel never owned Microprose. So who knows what's in those, right? And then Stern was it Stern? They bought the Stern ones to get Berserk and Frenzy, and there's about ten other games there as well. But and then they bought the M Network games, and they may have other. Other stuff in the world. It's really cool, actually. So here's Atari doing the opposite. They're sort of collecting the IP so that they can release, you know, the next version of Atari 50th or whatever they come out with can have now the 10M network games. They can have Berserk on there. Someone can make a new version of Frenzy for the VCS and they can release that. Possibly they can have F15 Strike Eagle for the Atari 800. Yeah, I mean, there are so many. There's things they can do on their Atari 50th now that they own, they own properties, right. or, or not just Atari 50th, just the next version when they start doing it. They're doing it right. They're probably picking these things up for almost nothing. They might own Gunship for the Atari ST. There are microprose games, micro value. I mean, that like um, Metro Cross, things like that that they could put it up for the ST. You know, things like that. Yeah, I don't know what they own, but I'll tell you what I like is that they're going in the opposite direction. They're collecting up IP that's been sitting around that probably no one has monetized for a long time. And they, it feels like they're going to do something with it. Or maybe they'll remake it. I, you know, and they, they bought that other, they acquired a, a game company that does retro game remakes, yes, I believe. they did. So, so there's a lot there that they're doing that points towards a very interesting future for 
Atari systems and stuff like that. And I think that's just, it's just great. And on the other hand, now the Intellivision name seems to have disappeared. Now it's Amico and then Amico Home. It's lost so much of what the original intention was. They're desperately selling things off to make money. It's probably, people get upset about the Coleco Chameleon, but at least- worse. No one, I don't think that ever went to crowdfunding. Like no one spent a, spent a penny on it. This is worse. This is people's money socked away, investors socked away, and they've got nothing. So You know, the funny thing is people were so afraid of people pointing fingers at it and saying it's only a retro pie or it's only this, it's only that. Big deal. Like, big deal. Haven't come out that way. It's got Bluetooth. It's got everything you need. Write some custom software for it. You don't need hardware, I swear. But then it's just a retro pie box. Like, like that's that's the problem. And this is that's the problem. You don't really, you don't really need a console. No, you don't. That's the thing. You're right. They should have spent their time building a Unity game that had all this, all the old games and new games. Maybe they sold a controller. Maybe this is what they're doing now. But that ultimately could go on every platform. Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, never, and so, so okay, we don't have to talk about it anymore. I, just, I, I know that forever there's been a contingent on one side, this side, blah, 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 back and forth. I don't give a crap about that. I have hopes that everyone who purchases those cartridges would get something they could put them on. That's and right. They haven't. I had hopes. And that's that. all. My hope was for those people who, and people who put down money for it, they're not going to get anything. But it's like, I just had hope that the people who put money into it, I'm not, don't think they're stupid. I just think that they had this. People who had Intellivision in their hearts put some money into this and wanted it back and nothing happened. And those people that get screwed, and that sucks. Yeah, it does suck. But I think it started with the best intentions and it ends in such a weird and it's yeah. not and it's not over, but I mean it's it, I mean it's over except that they haven't, you know, rolled the credits yet. But I mean, put it this way. Remember when the uh the LA Aztecs turned into the indoor LA Aztecs? Oh yes. That's that's what it is now. Yeah, no, right. And then yeah. Yes, that's exactly what it is. It's now it's indoor soccer. It's not an ASL, and no one comes to the games. Okay, so what is our next segment, Steve? What's our inflection point? Yeah, so that's the inflection point of the current Atari and in television. Our inflection point is something we've been talking about for so long that we finally have done, and that is start writing and releasing retro game programming tutorials right. on YouTube. And you have started with the Atari ST and I have started with the Atari 700 and we actually have produced something. <laughs> I've produced two so far and you have four in the can. You put one up. Well, no, I have four that I've written, but I have one, okay. one that's done and one I'm currently working on. And by in the can, I mean you haven't written. But let's because... talk about yours first. Let's talk about yours. So you're, you're working on the Atari ST and yes. showing people how to program in STOS. So explain a little bit about that. So what I'm doing is I am taking the modern approach to programming on the Atari ST, if possible, in the simplest way possible that is the most powerful, simple way. So STOS is an incredible program. The the STOS is a game creation tool, a, a basic programming language. Its competition out there would be GFA Basic for the ST and some of the game tools and sprite utilities that came out for that. But STOS was extended starting in 1989 by Mandarin Software, the people who put it out, and by various individuals into a full-blown game development environment that could 
possibly compete even on the Atari STE with some the commercial software. Wow. wow. And that's where we're heading. So that's where we're heading. We're starting out with the tricks to get some single screen arcade conversions done. And then we're going to move on to some other tricks, maybe to do vertical scrollers, maybe to do horizontal scrollers, hopefully to target at least the STE's sound capabilities with digital music. I even made a mod file, which is a, which is kind of like doing an acid music thing, but with tiny samples that you can play on an STE in a menu or an STE during game. It's like you get four tracks to basically loop, like Fruity Loop style, make, wow. make music. I uh, did one of those that would I uh, maybe a make a thing with that later showing how to use it anyway. So, you know, Stoss comes with a sprite editor, comes with the music editor, comes with an icon editor, comes with a font editor, comes with a map editor. And then people have extended these tools and there's a lot, there's a community out there that's kind of stagnant. And so I'm publishing my tutorials to that Facebook community, hoping to drive more people to get in, in, interested. You know, a few people have been interested and we got a lot of views and stuff, but you know, I, I'm hoping that the more I get out there, the more will happen. You know, hoping for some games released on the ST because the, I see Amiga and Commodore 64 games are released all the time. And I think that other platforms need a few. Yeah, I I was very excited to see your tutorials. And, and a lot of the tutorials is not about Stoss itself, but about how to get it set up run on a modern computer because that's really yes. my problem, right? And I even provide... You know, a version of Stoss as a download that contains everything you need to go ready to use in, on in an emulator or on a hard drive on an STE. If you had the discs, you could probably follow along too. You could. You didn't. You just have to take the code. There's basically it's usable by anyone, but mostly it's targeting doing modern in a modern way to develop and get it pushed over to your emulator and play with it. And then when we get something good, we're going to play it on a real real ST. Yeah, that sounds cool. So tell me a little bit about. Um the strengths that you see Stoss having if someone wanted to, if someone was thinking about doing retro game programming now, they can choose from so many, right? Um, you know, game builders and, and programming languages and full assembly language or, or C, you know, um, what are some of the strengths of Stoss? Why would someone- Let me just talk about Stoss. Let me first give a little strengths of why you might choose the Atari ST as a platform too. Atari ST is an incredibly simple platform to do basic development on. In Stoss, you're only worried about, I got 16 colors, I got a limited number of sprites, I can do a few things in the vertical blank, and I make my game. And so it's like you're dealing with these very, very, some constrained resources that actually promote creativity in how you solve problems. Now, Stoss is a full-blown basic language. You can make almost any Atari ST application except gem applications. You could make two things. So all of the utilities that come with Stoss, like the sprite editor, the map editor, all built in Stoss. So it, oh, wow. they show you the power of Stoss to build utilities. It's got powerful screen manipulation tools. You can save parts of the screen to a string. You can cut and paste parts. There are some limitations to how you can do it, but there's ways around it that we're going to go through in the tutorials. It has really powerful sprite animation commands, and there's really powerful ways to get around those sprite animation commands because of their limitations. I got a question. Can you scale or rotate the sprites? You can scale them. You can. You can scale. There's not just a scale. There's a whole screen scaling. And so there's some things you could do where you can pre-cache that scaling ahead of time without having to do it yourself in, in sprites, and then you could use it for things. 
but you need memory. You need to have memory to do it. So how much memory do you have? Like, like when you're, do you have memory banks you could put stuff into? You have the total amount of memory on your machine. So on the ST, you have up to four megs to use. You don't have any limitations really in how much you use. There are memory banks. Those are disk-based and memory-based, but those are, I wouldn't worry too much about those. The memory banks can all be manipulated in certain ways. Just know it can take control of the full four megs on your ST. Wow. You can add to it with assembly languages extensions, and that's where when you want to move to things like playing mod music, targeting the STE or maybe the STE sound or whatever, the joy STE joysticks, those special JAG joysticks, you can do all that with Stas. Wow. But it's got some weaknesses too. Their sprite system is very good for beginners, but it gets to be slow with more than a few sprites on the screen. We're not going to worry too much about that. We are going to bypass that pretty quickly in our tutorials. Floating point math is pretty slow. Um, you have to use line numbers in your code, not in the modern development that I'm doing in VS Code, but line numbers eventually get baked into your code at some point in the process. It's got very limited control structures for programming. You can add a key. What do you have? Um, if with one command on a line separated by colons, there is else, uh, there may be else if, but I, I, and, but there is a case statement that's been added. So there's a, there's a control, something called the control extension that adds a case statement and a few other things. You remove line numbers in VS Code and you can use labels. Almost like programming in assembly language, when you get down to, you can just jump basically. You're not going to use your go-tos as much as you think. You're going to want to stick as much code in line as possible. So what about the plugin to VS Code? Plugin to VS Code is very simple. That's a plugin you download in VS Code. It's from stosscoders.com. A guy named Neil Holiday made it. Build in VS Code. You build from ASCII files of Stoss basic commands that are built with basically Stoss but no line numbers. And... Um, and then you you can build it and send it to an emulator if you want to. It's very simple. Help files for the basic DOS commands. So if you start typing a command, it, it knows what commands you're trying to type. So it's got a few utilities like that. It's very nice. Better if you if you use plain DOS and use this, it's it's a world better. Why don't we play that supercut that you're gonna make of some of your coding lessons? Okay. And then we'll return back and we'll talk about the 7800. Let's do it. Hi, welcome to Make a Thing. Let's make a thing. Let's make a thing. Yeah. Beginning Atari Stoss Basic number one, simple sprites and animation. Part one, Hello World. In this series, we'll look at Stoss Basic for the Atari ST. This program was designed as a game creation language, but sometimes has been mistaken for a construction set, which it is not. In some previous videos, I've gone over what utilities come with Stoss and have looked at using some of the more advanced extensions, such as the ones that target the Blitter. Links to those are below and at the accompanying blog posts in those series. Today we are going to take a step back and start over. We're going to pretend that we've just broken open the manual for Stoss. I've created a zip file called INVBSTOS that contains all of the files necessary to work with this series, including all of the updated Stoss language files, the compiler, Sprite 600, and Stoss Maestro. 
It can be used on a real machine as a folder on a hard drive, or it can be used in an emulator like Atari or Steam in a Gemdos hard drive. Link below is also a video that will show you how to set up Atari to use just such a folder. Also, we'll be using the stoscoders.com Visual Studio Code plugin to do our coding. This will allow us to minimally use the Stoss editor and make use of the power of modern tools to help along the way. If you want to follow along, I advise you to watch this entire video first to understand what we are going to be covering. After that, go to the videos linked at the end, set up Hatari or Steam and VS Code or a real ST environment. The videos are also in the description below, so you can pause this and follow those first if you like. And don't forget, all of the setup and zip file information is at the blog post located below. Okay, let's begin. I've unzipped the INVB STOS folder directly to my Documents folder in Windows. This folder can be anywhere you like and it will work just as well on a Linux or Mac computer. The code folder is where we will set up our project folders. Remember this location or copy the location from the file manager or the finder window. We will need to use this in VS Code. In VS Code with the stoscoders.com stoss plugin installed, we can set up a new project with the command palette. We open the command palette with control or command plus shift plus P. Choose the stoss game creator stoss new option from the command palette. Paste or type in the full path to the location of the code folder. Change the name of the project to anything you want, but to stay consistent with this series, you can call it First Step. Press Enter through the rest of the dialogs to keep the default. The STOS folder is where our final STOS code build files will go. The plugin is set to use a file called STOS main in the root and will build a file called build.asc and place it in the STOS folder. The STOS folder build.asc is the ASCII file that we'll open in STOS in Hatari to import and run our code. It's not as complicated as it sounds, and by the time we end this video, you'll be a pro at it. We're going to use a set of sprites that come with STOS. These are called animals.mbk. Those are in the ACC folder in the root of the Gemdos hard drive. We need to copy this file and move it to the STOS folder in our project. Here we can see that we have set the INVB STOS folder as the Gemdos hard drive. Now let's finish off part one of the video with a simple hello world to show the setup working properly. I've added a line number here, but it's not necessary with the VB code plugin. If you omit them, the build process will create them for you, which is one of its best features. Control or command plus shift plus B will build the project and we'll place the build.asc in the STOS folder. Now let's move to Hatari running STOS and open the file. When you first open the fload dialog, press the F4 key or use the mouse to click on it. The file dialog will not be in the proper folder and we'll have to look for it. It will also be set to look for star.bas files. We really want it to show star.asc files. We'll show you how to work around this in the next section. Once you find and load build.asc, it will be loaded into the editor line by line. What this is actually doing is importing the build.asc as an ASCII file into the current loaded basic program. We have nothing loaded, so this is fine. In the future, we'll always want to clear the memory with a new command before loading in an ASCII file. Once the file is loaded, if you type run, it should say, hello STOS. 
Hey guys, this is Edge of Impossible. If you'd like more Atari content, be sure to check out my YouTube channel or go to missionedpossible.com. We have tutorials, game reviews, and all kinds of Atari goodness. Hope to see you there. Okay, Steve, we're back. Yeah, I I enjoy those lessons, Jeff. I think I think it's you know that was uh, a that was a big cut though. I had to cut anything where I said, "Hey, look at what you see," and just kind of talk about. Yeah, it. I know <laughs> it makes it hard, but but that's it's still. I mean, give our one listener something to think about when they. Um... Um, definitely, we'll put links to the video in the notes though too. So I say one listener, but actually the stats are the same as they've always been, maybe up a tiny bit because of Google podcasts, but I'm not sure how many of those people actually listen or if they don't just show up on the homepage. I don't know how the analytics work coming from Google. So it's, it's weird, but I kind of don't care, to be honest with you. No. I mean, I do care. I'm glad there's some people that listen to this oh, yeah. and they got something out of it, but um, it's fun to just keep doing it because I think we've said this before. Our kids will have an incredible archive of things we've talked about that they could listen to that they've never heard before right. exactly. uh, in the future, which which I think is is a real big bonus for for doing this type of thing. Imagine when one of them discovers the 200 vi videos we have on YouTube. I think they know they're just they're scared to look. Yeah, right. Well, you know, they're they're too. They're kind of like, what is dad doing? But yeah, you know, I mean, and, someday and, they will. Someday they will care. And, and you know, what? I think doing retro game videos and stuff is hard because, I mean, I can tell like every person I watch doing it like is like they're like hiking in the woods or they're in their car, they're they're whispering in their garage. It's like it's it feels like nobody wants to admit that they're actually doing it to the family. <laughs> I mean, when some people care, videos. like like Neil. Neil. I'm not saying they don't. I'm just saying like there's a lot where it's like people are doing this on their spare time because they want to do it, but they kind of feel self-conscious about it and they shouldn't, but at the same time they do. Right. Um, and I, I kind of tell. But anyway, okay, let's talk about the Atari 7800. Hey, everybody. It's Bill from Atari Bytes. Every week on my show, I play a great old game. Then I read an original short story I wrote inspired by that game. Loosely inspired. Okay, often completely different. Sometimes not even based on any sort of reality. In contrast, on Into the Vertical Blank, which you're listening to right now, you get real stories about real people and what these games mean to them. So keep listening. Steve, let's talk about the 7800. Well, I've got a first lesson up called Hello World, 7800 Hello World. And it's exactly what it says. Uh, what it does is kind of a Atari 2600-esque color cycle on the screen going through 128 of the 7800's 256 colors and then prints Hello World on the screen. That is actually harder than it sounds because of how the 7800 works. And 7800 Basic, it's all about. And 7800 Basic is very similar to, I think it's similar to Stoss. It is. <laughs> in some ways, it's similar to Be Atari Basic. But I think in some ways it's more powerful than Be Atari Basic, but not as powerful as Stoss. So I did Be Atari. It's Be Atari for the 2600 is it's really cool, but there are a lot of limitations that are embedded in it because it, because a, a kernel is created for you already, and that kernel has some limitations as to what it can do. You there's a lot of stuff you can make, but like you couldn't make space invaders because there's no way to replicate the way space invaders. I'm gonna say no way, but it'd be very hard to make something like space invaders. I'm not I'm not gonna complain about the Atari because I think it's really cool, but the 7800 basic is more powerful in that what they did. 
and the the people who made it are are in the show notes. I don't want to mess up their names right now, but I'll just say that the the seventy hundred when it came out, and this is actually in the episode, uh, it you know was designed around the Maria chip, and the Maria chip, which is new graphics chip, was designed to uh, is is a little bit like a blitter chip. Its job was to move a bunch of sprites around on the screen and to create a and fast. It was almost eight megahertz, and it could it could quickly draw sprites and move them. That's pretty much all it does. It just creates display lists and of sprites, and it moves them around the screen. It doesn't have collision detection. Um, you have to do that yourself. It, you know, it doesn't have scaling. It doesn't have rotation. You know, it it can animate sprites, and it can do some palette color cycling to do color cycle animations. But in reality, it is just a super fast two D sprite mover and displayer. And it was designed, I believe, to play Robotron. Yeah, that's what my that's my guess too. Oh, right? <laughs> and it, it, yeah, because the way it, the way it works is you've got zones, and the zones are horizontal bands across the screen, and it has two different sized graphic modes as well. It's got a one sixty by one ninety two and a three hundred by two hundred, and maybe three hundred by one ninety two, but it's 300, 320, sorry, three twenty across. So basically double one sixty. The mode that I like is the one sixty mode because within the one sixty mode you can do a couple things. You don't have limitations on the colors of your sprites. From the three twenty mode, there's some limitations as to how the colors get displayed. In some ways the colors are all artifacting and I, I I'm not so excited about that, but I've seen some people make some really cool things with it. So I say you just need to be very skilled and how to make that work. The 160 mode is much more like how you would think of, I guess, Stoss, where you draw some three-color sprites with the sprite editor, you save them out as pings, you load them in, you have to set the color palette for each one again when they get loaded in, and then you display them on the screen and they display perfectly fine. And you also can uh, can display 12-color sprites too. It, you can get some very colorful sprites. Sprites can be as wide as you want them to be. Most of the time, they're 16 pixels high. They can be more pixels than that high, but it just uses more sprites and more zones when you do it. So what happens is it got zones, and zones are, like I said, horizontal bands, 16 pixels high or 8 pixels high. Each zone can have a certain number of sprites in it. doesn't matter if that sprite is one line in it or entirely encapsulated in it. it there's just a certain number of sprites that can be drawn in that zone. However, there's no hard and fast rule as exactly how many sprites can be in that zone. So sometimes, depending on the graphics mode, the resolution, the number of frames you're allowing to draw, if you do like a double buffering and then you you can allow like more frames to draw the screen, you can add more memory for the display list. I mean, you can get it to where it says it can draw over 100 sprites per zone per frame. But but in reality, it's, it's a lot less than that because even though you have enough memory in the display list to draw that many sprites in a zone, you don't have that much time with the electron gun to do it. And I have a couple, I have a test out there, a test application um, that's now on GitHub. And there's also a video about it that kind of shows in different modes with double buffering or without double buffering, with background, with not background, how many sprites you can actually get on the screen. It's somewhere between 16 and 30, depending on what you're doing, but in also practice with Wait, per zone, per zone, per zone. But also, you know, I've made games where when you start, 
doing a lot of things on the screen like fading sprites in or moving them around or animating them or or having lots of collision detection you know you start running out of resources as well so you really have to play around with it to figure out exactly what is going to work and and what i've done most of my games that i've created and never released their biggest problem was i got something great to work great as in it worked great and then i pushed it over the edge to where it stopped working artifacting <laughs> uh it just just the game wasn't good and i always get way too ambitious because i get excited about it and forget that the, you know we're working with a limited set of resources right so for my tutorial um i thought about using one of my old games i'm like no 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 no. i'm gonna start over and i'm making a game called uap it is inspired by the secret of skinwalker ranch it's a version of robotron um but it's not gonna have as many things on the screen but the point is that's the game that i believe the 700 was made to make and so i want to make something like it so in my version you are a ufo flying around the screen and your job is to pick up orbs because orbs are your energy the game is played on skinwalker ranch but it's not because it doesn't actually say that they always say on the show like skinwalker ranch is some kind of like portal or something so i decided that it is so you arrive at skinwalker ranch through a portal and you are you're the uap UAP. and your job is to collect enough orbs to open up the other portal to leave and that's why it's called quantum quantum stopover i think that's what i call it or quantum layover (laughs) the idea is this is the time from when one portal closes the other one opens and you have to collect enough orbs to open the other portal and the orbs are kind of like the humans that were in robotron and then each level has stuff that tries to get you you can shoot you shoot a 1.6 gigahertz ray don't ask me what that is you have to watch the show you have to watch the show but but even they don't know what it is but to me it's a 1. gigahertz ray you have to shoot drones black helicopters then uh rockets get fired at you right now from the bottom but they could come from the sides as well and you have to dodge the rocket or they bump into you um can you shoot them? you can shoot the rockets but here because I know far too many games out there that were so clever, like in television, guys were really too clever with themselves, making things you couldn't shoot. And the point of a game with a joystick and a fire button is shooting. Sure. So if there's something on the screen and you can't shoot it, it becomes really I agree. And my goal, That's though, all. is to build the game so that you so that it, it works. You know, so so it might limit the amount of objects that are on the screen to maximize the chance that it will actually display correctly. So you can also so some of the strengths of the seventy hundred, like I said, it's the Maria chip. It has four megs, four megs, four K of RAM available to you. It has the ability to bank switch. So if you just have a forty eight K default cartridge, you can address all of that forty eight K ROM in your code with no problem. You don't have to bank switch or anything. And in some cases, 48K ROM is good enough. You can also add a 16K RAM chip to the cartridge that you're targeting, which gives you another 16K of memory, some of which you can apply to the display list, and that's how you get more items in your zones. You don't have to apply all 16K, and in fact, you can apply just a portion of it and get less items available in the zones, but effectively, You'll, it'll be fine because you could never get that many in the zones anyway. Like it'll say like 160 and then you cut out 4K and it's like, you now you can only get 98 um, sprites in the zone. It's like, yeah, but I'm only really going to get 12. So it doesn't matter. 
Are you going to be targeting pokey? So, pokey so you can too? target the pokey. Let, let, let's get to that in a sec. Okay. So the strengths are basically its ability to move stuff around the screen. It's the memory and your cartridge, your ROM cartridges. Right now, I think I saw one that can be up to 512K as well. At 512, anything above 48K, you're going to be bank switching. Bank switching is a it's native in 7800 basic. It's quite easy to get implemented once you understand it. However, Bank switching is weird to people who program because bank switching in some ways feels the opposite of how you would optimize something. In some cases, and with bank switching, you have to repeat code that is another bank. You have to say, oh, I'm when I'm in this bank, I don't want to switch back to the other bank to do my collision detection. When I'm in this bank, I just have to rewrite my collision detection routine because it's going to be way faster right, to do it here right. than to do a bolster. The stuff like that where and that's maybe not a great example, but that's the type of thing where you start you start optimizing your code for how fast it will run and not necessarily for conserving resources on your cartridge. Very few games are written in functional JavaScript and very few games are written in object or no, in Java. No. Okay. There's a reason yeah. for that. <clears throat> so some of the weaknesses, well, it, it doesn't it's sound chip is the, the original Tia chip that came in the 2600. You get two sound channels. Now, since you have way more data, you have the ability to send a lot more notes more frequently to both sound channels and effectively make music that sounds way better than you could on the Atari 2600 because you can store all that data and play it on the Tia chip. So that actually gives you Bet you can actually get better sound, I believe, on the 7800 just simply because you're sending more data more often to both channels. Yeah, just look at yeah. Food Fight. Just Food Fight has incredible sound and music, and it's because, it's because they, you because yeah. you have a lot of space to put the data, which otherwise you wouldn't have on the VCS where you've you've got very little. So that's one weakness. You can target a pokey chip. The Dragonfly SD card has one in it, whereas the concerto does not. Although I think there will be a time when you can plug it in to the concerto, a pokey. That still hasn't happened, I don't believe. Or the remake of the pokey that they were working on doesn't exist yet. The problem with the Dragonfly, it's really cool, except that it needs its own power supply as well as and, and right. it's kind of cumbersome to use but once you get the hang of the dragonfly it really is a it's a great cartridge for the 7800 and the vs code plugin is fantastic so that's atari dev studio atari dev studio supports atari 7800 basic it is it supports be atari basic and then with a little bit of finagling you can get it to support dasm too and program in dasm so when i was going through oscar toledo's 2600 book early this year i did it in in vs code in atari dev studio and i got it to work by copying the the header files into the same directory as my dasm and running it it worked fine i think it's called vcs.h and there's another one the plugin includes a sprite editor and it also includes uh, a 7800 emulator as well as an, as well as I think Stella too. But when you go to run your games, they run right out of right out of VS Code. The sprite editor is fantastic. It saves ping files. However, it has one weird bug or not bug a feature where sometimes the orders of the colors that are stored inside the ping file are not necessarily the palette order that you used and so there there's times when you need to rearrange those palette colors to get your colors to work right not a big deal with the three color sprite a 
nightmare with a 12 color sprite. I've spent literal days swapping colors until oh, I got them to look right. Because it's not like the colors are swapped. Like, let's say I'm in some cases like a 12 sprite, 12 color sprite graphic. Like I did a face for a guy who's right. talking to you. Each one of those 12 sprites could have the palette colors mixed up in different ways. And they're not always swapped. So it's not always like number two is swapped for number four. Sometimes number two is swapped for number six, but number six is in number four. So when you swap two with four, now you've got six in six and two. Four is correct, but now two and six need to be swapped. It's like a sliding puzzle that keeps moving. There's a new feature, though, in 7800 Basic that allows you to pull the colors right out of the ping file instead of setting the colors directly in the palettes. I've got it to work once, and it works with the last thing you loaded in only. That's what I found. That was workable for a title screen. It worked great. But anyway, there's those are some of the weaknesses. But as a whole, the 7800 is amazing at what it does. You can't believe how much more it can do than the 2600. I can't believe it is seemingly powerful in ways that no one ever tapped into when they were making those original 7800 games. I really think that it is one of the best but most untapped systems out there. And I, I really hope that people get inspired to go make some games for it. So why don't we listen yeah. to a little bit of that um, tutorial I did? Okay, sounds good. Cool. Let's do that right now. All right. Welcome to my Atari 7800 basic tutorial. So get your Atari mug and fill it with your favorite beverage. Put on your spectacles if you got them and let's make a thing. This is the first in a series of videos showing my own techniques using Atari 7800 basic. I do not claim that these are the best or only ways to do things, but they are the methods I have developed over the past few years, programming, but not necessarily releasing Atari 7800 games. The Atari 7800. For me, it's the most underutilized console and the one that holds the most promise as to what can be done with the 6502-based Atari machine. The 7800 is backwardsly compatible with the 2600, but sports the Maria chip designed at the time in about 1983 to move graphics around the screen like no other machine, but especially better than the ColecoVision, Atari's main competition when it was designed. We'll talk more about the history of Atari and the 7800 as this series continues, but for now, let's get started by jumping in and creating Atari 7800 Hello World. The first step is to download Visual Studio Code. You can find it for PC, Mac, or Linux at code.visualstudio.com. Once you've downloaded, you can click the plugin extension button on the left side of the IDE and you will see a searchable list of all the extensions available. There are many. Search for Atari Dev Studio. Atari Dev Studio combines Atari 7800 Basic, created by Fred Quimby with help from Bruce Tomlin, and now maintained by Mike Sarna. With the plugin, you can easily compile Biatari Basic Code, Atari 7800 Basic Code, and DASM Assembly Language Code. It also features a sprite editor and the A7800 emulator for easy testing. Look over the preview pane and see the information for Atari Dev Studio. Notice it was created by Chunky Pixel. We are all indebted to Chunky Pixel for creating such a fine piece of software. Now click the Install button. Next, create a new file and save it on your hard drive. 
I will call mine demo1.78b. The .78b extension will make sure Visual Studio Code associates the file with the 7800 compiler and provides the codings included in the Atari Dev Studio plugin. First, we'll drop in some boilerplate code. Set zone height 16, set display mode to 160A, plot value on screen to on, set ROM size 32K. The first line, set zone height 16, is how we set the horizontal band zones for sprites. Each horizontal band can have a set number of sprites, usually 16 to 20, depending on how many CPU cycles it takes to draw the entire screen. You can set this to either 8 or 16. 8 allows for more bands, but with fewer sprites in each band, while 16 has less bands, but more sprites in each band. You'll need to experiment, though, with these options and many others to optimize your Atari 7800 game. The next line sets the graphics mode to 160A. 160A is the most basic mode. It is a 160 by 192 mode, which means the pixels are like tall rectangles. Each sprite in this mode can be three colors plus a transparent color. There are other modes too. 160B allows for 12 color sprites, well actually 12 plus transparent, while multiple 320 modes allow for high-res screens that rely on color artifacting for multicolored sprite displays. My favorite mode right now is 160A mixed with some 160B sprites, as we'll see later in these lessons. Set ROM size to 32K. This is the size of the cartridge. 32K is small, but we don't need anything else yet. There are many cartridge sizes, including ones that contain extra RAM to hold data and expand the number of sprites that can be displayed on the screen. The Atari 700 Basic Guide was created by Mike Rev in Sarna. It will give you detailed information about all the valid options for this command, as well as invaluable information about Atari 700 Basic. I usually keep it open in a window while I'm working. The guide is updated often. There are many more commands and options listed in 2023 than there were in 2019 when I first started with it. In fact, I'm just now discovering something new. For instance, while writing this, I discovered these palette fading commands I've never seen before. These would have saved me a lot of work on my last project. There's absolutely no way I can cover all of Atari 700 Basic in these tutorials. My job, as I see it, is to show you these demos to get you started. Once you're comfortable, you can devour the Atari 7800 Basic Guide and then even tackle assembly language one day, if that's your thing. Anyway, for this game, we'll keep it simple for now and just use 32K. With 32K, we will not need to bank switch as the 7800 can address all 32K ROM space at once. Don't know about bank switching? It's a way to almost infinitely expand the ROM addressable on the cartridge. The last line, background equals $1.60, sets the background color. To fix this, we add a simple game loop with the underscore game loop label, with the go to plus a clear screen and a draw screen and recompile. Clear screen removes everything from the current display and draw screen draws the sprites in the display list. Right now, we have no sprites, just a background color. And yes, this is a go-to. Get used to it. To recreate complex logic in Atari 700 Basic, you almost can't avoid using go-to. Sorry. You can create functions, but they also take up precious resources, so I mostly avoid them. Otherwise, you have go-to, go-sub, for-next, and if-then for all your branching and logic. Will these limits break your long-held religious beliefs about programming? Probably. Will you also get used to it and find yourself thinking about how to solve complex problems with just a few control structures? Also, probably. Here, when we run it, this happens. Our background color is displayed. Hey everyone, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. Do you like Atari? Of course you do. What about the 8-bit computer line? 
It was one of the best. Well, how about you consider joining Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review the cartridge-based games for Atari's 8-bit computer line. We also review budget games which are mostly released only in the UK. But that's not all. We also dig up game history, share personal experiences, and perform questionable comedy. You'll get all of that and for free just by listening to us on either iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's xegs, the number 8, bit.com. And when you're done listening, please send us your hate mail because we really need the feedback so we know someone is tuning in. Hi, this is Ballistic Coffee Boy, host of That Atari Show. On That Atari Show, I feature Atari news, homebrews, game reviews, Atari podcasts, Atari books, interviews with content creators, game developers, and more, as well as have the occasional feature where I focus on one topic or product. On my channel, I also feature breaking Atari news on Atari Newsline, unbox retro goodies on Unboxed, Google over box art and manuals and RTFM, feature general vintage gaming content on BCB, and more. You can find me on YouTube by searching for Ballistic Coffee Boy. That's Ballistic with a K. So get your Java on and let's celebrate Atari from the 2600 on through to the new Atari VCS. Hope to see you there, fellow Atarians. Have a great one. So what happens after Hello World, Steve? So, so number two, you're going to draw a sprite. We're going to display the sprite on the screen, and we're going to move it around with the joystick. And number three, we create a title screen and sort of do some other code cleanup and learn a couple other things. And then in number four, we create another sprite, which is the orb. We do collision detection, and we do a, a score as well. So that's where I am on that. And in between, there's some philosophizing about the game industry and about Atari and stuff like that as well, of course. <laughs> I um, I didn't get to talk about this, but in you know, in number one, we just put a, a, a star sprite on the screen, and we move it and animate it. In number two, which I'm not describing here, but we will... I just I mean we didn't hear it but people can listen to it maybe next time I'll talk about it is we talk about the screen a little bit and how to use a tile sheet but starting in the third Stoss one we start building a game we're going to do a port of an arcade game and I haven't picked out what oh, okay. game we're going to do yet so what sounds fun next, I I, I you know again we called this episode inflection point because it's different than what we normally do I'm not saying we won't go back and do some yeah. stuff we're doing before no we'll have some I have stories a, and stuff. I have a bunch of stories I've written and haven't recorded um, about all sorts of history stuff and things and um, let's next time let's get a little besides those if we have time let's get a little bit into the history of asteroids on the various Atari systems that I've been working on. It'll be great if we could talk to Tony Longworth next time. We should bring Tony on and and do something with him. Yeah, we'll bring Tony in. We told him earlier this year we'd bring him on, and then we've just kind of piddled away half the year before we've even done anything with it. So uh, that's that's how it works, isn't it? It happens every year. Okay, well, have fun in the vertical blank, Steve. Okay, into the vertical blank, Jeff. Into the vertical blank. Hi, this is Tony Longworth, UK dark alternative music composer and all-round Atari nut. Make sure to check out my Patreon music campaign. That's patreon.com slash Tony Longworth. Lots of free music over there. And if you can afford a dollar or two, please help me continue to write music. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast and supporting Into the Vertical Blank. And I hope you like this piece of music of mine. (laughs) 
Next frame calculated. Prepare to write new data. V blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.